You probably remember hearing in school, way back low those many years ago, of the Lewis and Clark expedition. The Lewis and Clark expedition was way back in the early 1800s. I had not remembered how long ago it was. I thought it was more middle 1800s, but it was actually started on May 14, 1804, and ended on September 23, 1806. So it was about a two and a half years worth. It was commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson shortly after the Louisiana Purchase, which of course you also all remember from high school or elementary school. Uh, That purchase was done in 1803. And the idea was to explore and map this huge newly acquired territory. It doubled the geographic size of the United States to find a practical route across the continent all the way to the Pacific Ocean, commonly known as the Northwest Passage. The idea was that you could then establish and have control over a main um, transportation artery from East Coast to West Coast, Coast, and of course that was very important, was establish an American presence there before the European powers, England particularly, and France, Portugal, and Spain, before they would get in there, we wanted to get in there, of course, first. And of course, there were scientific and economic objectives there. The so-called core of discovery, which was this group of men, uh, consisted of about 40 to 45 men led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. So they started out in um, May of 1804, and a little more than a year later, on August 12, 1805, after they had sailed and moved and often portaged, I think one portage lasted a month, they had to carry their boats and canoes uh, for about a month uh, in order to to head upstream up the Missouri River. And finally, on August 12, 1805, they were located at the fountain rivers of the Missouri River. Again, I'm not a super, uh, super geographer, but if you look at the map, which I've done this week, the Missouri River flows from the Continental Divide down toward the eastern eastern part of the part of the United States. So they were at the fountainheads of the Missouri River. And they were at a place called what's now known as the Lemhi Pass. And so they uh, Lewis and three of his companions um, walked up to the ridge that was just in front of them which they figured was the continental divide and they were expecting on the other side of that ridge to find the fountainhead of another river, as yet, I believe, unnamed. Perhaps it had the name Columbia in that time. I'm not exactly sure now that I'm standing here thinking about it. But anyway, they were expecting to find this fountainhead in this river that would would carry them down the other side, like they had come up, all the way down to the Pacific Ocean. When they got there, and you can show the next picture, Christopher, when they got there, what they saw was this. This is the Lemmy Pass. They saw, and I'm quoting from their diary, immense ranges of high mountains still to the west of us with their tops partially covered with snow. Was no river, was no fountainhead. All they saw was for miles and miles and miles, mountains. And here they were with their canoes, and with their boats, 
and with their idea that two to three hundred years of experts had all been sure about, but now were utterly and completely wrong. In front of them was not a gentle slope down to a navigable river running to the Pacific Ocean, but the Rocky Mountains, stretching for miles and miles as far as the eye could see, one set of peaks after another. There was no Northwest Passage. There was no navigable river. There was no uh, um, water route. The driving assumption of the brightest, most adventurous, entrepreneurial, and creative leaders of their time had been completely mistaken. Their expedition was built on a completely false expectation. They believed, like everyone before them, that the unexplored West was exactly the same geography as the familiar East. And they had all of these canoes and boats. I didn't look up. I don't know how many of them there were, but there were plenty of them. They had been using them now for 15 months to get up the Missouri River. But the canoes were totally useless. Couldn't do anything with them because there was no water. And there was no way they could carry these canoes over these hundreds and hundreds of miles of Rocky Mountain ridges. This is not particularly in the story, and, and, um, but someone suggested to me this week that there were three options, three things they could do with the canoes. One was um, they could build wagons with them. Another one was they could burn them and have a great barbecue. Or the other one was they could turn them into weapons. They actually, I believe, uh, traded uh, them uh, with Native American tribes that were there in order to get horses because they needed horses now to get across the mountains because they had to trade the canoes in for horses. So you can just imagine this huge shock. All the wisdom of all the ages was telling everybody, this is what we're going to find. This is ahead of us. It was totally different. And not only that, all the tools that they had, or most of the tools, a lot of the tools, were also useless. I came across this story in this great detail in a book that I read in the last couple of weeks called Canoeing the Mountain. And it's by a uh, pastor who has spent the last 20 to 25 years helping churches think about and plan for their future. And this is the, the backbone story of, of the book, Lewis and Clark. And what he's What he's saying in this book and what I think he's saying to us is that we today as church, whether it be certainly American church, likely European church, probably much less churches in other parts of the world, we are also at this continental divide place, partly exacerbated and made more uh, obvious and painful because of COVID, but not entirely. 
It's no surprise to any of us, the, the statistics that we can find pretty easily that the church, and I'm, I'm limiting myself now particularly to America, has been in decline for quite a while. Especially the younger generation is just simply not that interested anymore. In addition to just this, this process of recline, there's what we've referred to before in the last couple of years here. I'll just use this word. There's this deconstruction going on. Somewhat motivated by the fact that toxic culture and power dynamics of, that are in the church are being exposed. Theological foundations, things we always believed are being questioned. And not questions from a cynicism, but questions because we really legitimately have these questions. Is, is what we've always believed, is this, is this really what it is? The relationship of church to culture is being exposed and critiqued. The age-old assumptions about who we are and what we are called to be and do are being questioned. And in some cases, we're discovering that our assumptions were utterly wrong, and therefore that the tools we have, the tools we were given, are not going to work anymore. We are in uncharted territory. The world in front of us looks nothing like the world behind us. And I don't know if you've had this feeling, the same kind of feeling since Thursday afternoon, since Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Monarch for 70 years. The first prime minister that she ever met, shook hands with, I believe was Winston Churchill, and he was born 101 years ago. This age. And now we're looking at King Charles. Somebody quit this week. He finally got a job. <laughs> at 73. He's not going to make 70 years. Pretty sure. And then there's Prince William. And you look ahead, you say, what, what, what's... What's going to happen with England? What's going to change with the world? It's one of these moments where the stability provided by Elizabeth, the queen, like her or not, like the monarchy or not, she was there. And everybody knew this is the way things work. And she knew how things work. And she made sure that things worked that way. And now we really don't know. So we're standing as church, we're even standing as culture, a little bit in this position on this continental divide. And the tools that we have likely aren't going to work very well. Well, way back, almost 2,000 years ago, about 20 years, 15 to 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, there was this, these groups of 
churches in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and scattered around that area, the, the, the area of Palestine. And they were facing the same situation. The Jewish people were very, um, I'll use the word ethnic. They believed that they were the people of God. They believed that they were the only people of God. They believed that the only way to enter into the family of God was to become a Jew. They were very convinced about that, very sure of it. I'm sure in a good sense, proud of it, thankful for it, grateful for it. And as the church spread out from Jerusalem, people like Paul and Barnabas and other Christians came in contact with what is known in the New Testament as Gentiles, people who aren't Jews, Romans and Greeks and other other kinds of ethnicities with totally different culture, totally different way of doing things, totally different way of experiencing life. Lots of conflict between the two. If you think that the culture wars of today, the political partisanship of today is pretty bad, go back there. Because it wasn't just junk you hear on the news. It was a matter of life and death. You could get crucified. And you could get crucified by them. The Jerusalem church, the, the, the Jewish Christians were standing on this, on this continental divide. And everything that they knew from the Hebrew Bible and all of the context and all of the tools that they had with the temple and the sacrifices and the priests and the feasts was not going to work anymore for those people who were also being called to become children of God. So everyone was called to Jerusalem to, to talk about this. There was a great big meeting. What are we going to do? So they gathered together and Peter, this apostle of Jesus, stood up and he told about his experience with this Roman centurion named Cornelius and how he'd gone to his house and the Holy Spirit had fallen on him. And everybody was real surprised. Shouldn't happen, especially to this kind of a guy. And Barnabas and Paul told about their first missionary journey. They'd gone into uh, what's now Turkey, what was at that time Asia Minor. And everywhere they went, people were getting healed. All kinds of great things were happening. And people were understanding that this Jesus who had been crucified and and had rose again from the the grave was, was the king, was the Lord. so they were talking about and discussing, and they're actually, the Bible says that there arose a sharp dispute. They were actually arguing with each other. Just like talking heads do today. They just couldn't, couldn't figure out how this was going to work. 
And again, just to bring it in today, most of us looking ahead over the next 10, five to 10 to 15 years do not have a clue what's going to happen. <laughs> How messy are things going to get? So they kept talking. And after a while, there was a moment of silence. And James, and you remember James, because we talked about him for a number of weeks last spring. James stood up and he quotes this ancient prophet Amos. And Amos makes this comment that there's going to come this time when all of the Gentiles will seek the Lord. And James proposes this practical solution. Okay, let's let's open our minds and hearts and our, 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 our communities to these Gentiles. But we'll ask them to abstain, abstain from food polluted by idols. We'll ask them to abstain from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And so they all agreed that this was a good practical solution. And so they wrote a letter to these Gentile Jesus followers. And it's that letter I'd like to read to you. It'll be projected on your screen. It's from Acts 15, starting at verse 23. Here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although they gave... the We gave them no instructions. So get the feeling for this conflict that's there. And again, just just think about the conflict in our time, and and you're right there. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The line that... uh, the line, the line that for years has struck me about this letter is this one. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There's this great level of freedom here. This is not listening to some tablets of stone that come down from some mountain. This is getting together as a community of people standing on this continental divide, looking ahead at these snow-capped mountains, fighting with one another, having conflict, and out of that conflict saying, you know, it, it seems to us, I get this feeling, we get this feeling. And it seems like the Holy Spirit is also showing us the way. Let's do this. And you can almost sense in that, let's see what happens. Let's give it a shot. Let's just keep moving forward. 
Let's get rid of those canoes. Let's trade for some horses. See what that does. See how far that gets us. See what we find on the other side of that mountain. And then we'll go further. You feel the, the, the flexibility in there, the, the searching. There's no certainty here. Hey, let's give this a try. Several months ago, I heard a podcast. As you know by now, I'm, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, done by a, a professor of sociology and theology at Northern Theological Seminary, David Fitch. He was talking about the church and, again, talking about the church standing at this continental divide. And the phrase that he used was this phrase, that we as churches should be looking for this sense of common calling. And that really stuck in my mind. And it stuck in my mind as maybe a modern way of saying what the Jerusalem church said in that letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And I thought it might be a good way for us as Trinity Church to think about in this coming year or two, what is our sense of common calling? Not a mission and vision, as good as that may be. Not even goals, as good as they may be. What is our sense of common calling? The sense is, I just looked up some synonyms, it's to become aware of to perceive, to discern, to recognize, to understand. A little bit vague. It's a, it's a, it's a feeling kind of like. It's, yeah, I, I, think maybe, I, I think maybe this is good. I think maybe we should go in this way. It's a sense that's common. It's not only individual. And if you've heard me at all over the last couple of years, you can move on to the next slide, Christopher, thanks. You know that I'm, I'm growing in my, in my conviction that we are far too individualistic in our culture and our society. We think we can do it on our own. We think we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We think that we, in the end, do not have to pay attention to anybody else, and that includes our theology. And instead, we are part of what what, um, Diana Butler Bass has called this web of belonging. We are connected to God, to each other, and to his creation in ways that we have never even begun to realize. So here as Trinity Church, we, we have this we, we, we have this commonality. We are connected. We've been connected for 67 years. Not those of us that are here in the room. There's this connection, this web that spanned these almost seven decades. And now as we look ahead, we're connected with each other. We're not just Loose individuals, loose grains of sand. We're part of this web of belonging. 
common. And then calling. Merriam-Webster describes calling as a strong inner impulse toward a particular course of action, especially when accompanied by conviction of divine influence. And in this word calling, I, I hear I hear what's in this letter to the to uh, to the Gentiles. I hear the Holy Spirit listening. Some of that's going to be found here. Some of that's going to be found here. And some of that's going to be found out there. What is our calling? You remember a couple of weeks ago. One of my favorite quotes on vocation, I think it fits here from Frederick Buechner, calling your vocation is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Where the deep gladness of Trinity Church and the deep hunger of the world meet. So what I'd like us to do as we move forward from today into this next year is to be thinking about what our sense of common calling is. And I have to be perfectly honest with you, I do not have a clue. I simply do not know. I've been officially the pastor here in October for seven years. And I started here just exactly eight years ago. So I've been eight years involved in this community. And since I came here, remember, I was a missionary and a church planter. I've been thinking and praying and reading and listening to podcasts and meeting people and involved in the community. And in every possible way that I can, trying to think, what is this sense of common calling? What's what? What, what what are we called here to do? And it's not that there's nothing. There, there, there are things. I'm not suggesting right now that there's nothing. But as we stand on this continental divide and look ahead, I do not know. You're not going to get it from me. And that's probably good. It needs to come from God, the Holy Spirit, through this sense of common being together, calling. And I'll also say that it doesn't matter much to me what that calling is. As long as we, or some of us, say, hey, we think God is calling us to this. The core of discovery had finally made it to the Pacific Ocean. They were low on supplies. They were tired. And now they had to make a camp for the long, wet winter in what today is the Oregon coast. Lewis and Clark disagreed as to where that camp should be. There was tension there. And what they decided to do to find the answer to where their camp should be was extraordinary. Remember, 
Uh, Lewis and Clark were military people. And in a, in a military situation, you have the leaders and they give the commands. They say, guys, we're going to do this. I must comment that out of the 40 to 45 people who went on this trip, no one died except one guy quite at the beginning who died of appendicitis. The rest were all there yet. It's a remarkable achievement. So what did Lewis and Clark do? They said, we're going to take a vote. We're going to, again, 40 to 45 people, we're going to take a vote. And let the will of this group decide where we're going to place our camp. And not only did each man, part of the Corps, get to have his say, but a man by the name of York, who was um, William Clark's slave, got a vote. And probably some of you have heard of Sacagawea, the, the Native American woman who accompanied them on this whole trip, did translation and other work for them. She also got a vote. Stephen Ambrose reflects, this was the first vote ever held in the Pacific Northeast, Northwest, and it was the first time in American history that a black slave had voted and the first time that a woman had voted. So more than a year before, they're standing on this continental divide wondering what the heck are we going to do? Now they're down at the coast, and what's happening? Something entirely unexpected. A black man and a Native American woman are voting for the first time in American history. They have a voice. Who knows what can happen if a group of people like us get a sense of common calling? for these coming years. It could really be pretty cool.